My job is to play. Hey everybody, it's Erin. Welcome back to My Job is to Play. For this week's episode, I got to sit down with Julia Whalen. If you've listened to an audiobook, there's a very strong chance you know her voice. Julia has narrated some of the biggest best-selling books out there. She's also a brilliant writer herself. You may be familiar with her books, My Oxford Year, and Thank You for Listening. And this week, she's releasing a brand new audio experience called Casanova LLC. In this episode, we go deep into her journey of writing and releasing this new project. The way the seeds for this story were planted and the way Julia saw it all through is really exciting and inspiring to me. We also have a frank discussion on the highs and lows of being an audiobook narrator and how we can build a system that supports narrators better moving forward. Basically, this conversation is packed with goodness, and I'm thrilled I got to have it. Here she is, the wonderful Julia Whalen. Hello, Julia Whalen. Hello, Erin Mellon. <laughs> How are you, friend? This is awesome. I'm so happy you're here. This is so nice. I feel like the last time I saw you, we were had booths next to each other at Book Bonanza, right? <gasps> yeah, I guess that Which was not a great time. time to be talking. No. Not a, we were both hawking our wares and signing things, and we were not able to talk enough. So I'm really glad we're doing this. Me too. And that was that was really great. I loved I loved how you, me, and Erin Spencer were lined up where we were close enough to all the audiobook narrators that people that know us through our narration yeah. could come hang with us. And then yet we could also be authors in our own right. So Yes. That was well organized. I must it was. Say. It was good. I wanted to start out with I was going to say it's kind of a doozy of a question. I don't think it's a doozy. but um, Is that a gotcha I, question? Is it a gotcha question? No, it's definitely not a gotcha. <laughs> I wanted to talk about using your actual life and experiences in your writing. Because I mm, feel like you are doing that in a big way. Um, my Oxford year, you actually had an Oxford year, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. It's about the audiobook world. You've been an audiobook narrator for 15-something years, right? So how does this happen? This is something that you're, you're plumbing your own life okay. for ideas. Yeah, this is a really good—this is very good. So at Let's this get point, into it. I like to remind people, um, or maybe they don't know this, because I actually have only realized somewhat recently that I forgot to record the author's note that I wrote for my Oxford year, and so it's not in the audio. So I can always tell the difference between the people who read the book and who listen to the book, because they know this story. The people who read it know this story, but the people who listen to it don't. And it was oh. so ridiculous that, like— that just, I didn't record it, no one flagged it, and we moved on, and it's very irritating to me. Well, let's get a new edition or something. Yeah, I probably need to talk to Harper about that. Yeah. So, yes, okay, so the first book with my Oxford year, that was actually a, that was not an original story of mine. That was originally a screenplay that uh, I was hired to work on. So that was an existing oh. property that I was hired to come in and develop because I had experience with Oxford. And up to that point, the other screenwriters that had been on the project had not. But in the course of that year or year and a half or whatever that I was working on it and doing draft after draft after draft, the producers got to know that I had very strong opinions about the story. And so they said, do you think there's a book here? And I said, nothing yeah. has ever wanted to be a book more. Please let me novelize this. So that is why that book the only intersecting part of my life is that I, too, spent a year at Oxford, but it is not a story that I created. 
There, right. there is, however, and this parallels, thank you for listening, where I think people think the autobiographical part of that story is, I spent a year at Oxford, the real autobiographical part of that story is what I was grappling with in terms of dealing with grief. Mm-hmm. And I had lost my father very suddenly, and I had just finished losing the, the slow process of losing my grandfather. And mm-hmm. so I was dealing with those two very different types of grief at the time that I was writing my Oxford year And so that's the very autobiographical part of that book. And same thing with Thank You for Listening, where people think it's the audiobooks that's autobiographical, and it's not. It's the grandparent with dementia element of that story um, that feels very much me. Yeah. So this third book, the next, the Casanova LLC one, which is the book within a book, the book they're recording in Thank You for Listening, I really hope I may have finally broken through where no one actually thinks that's autobiographical. (laughs) Okay, so this is a thing that's been, this is something that's been like following you around. Maybe I touched a nerve right away and I didn't mean to. No, no, it's great though. It's honestly, no, no, it's good because this is, it is a very real thing. And I think, you know, look, there was so much also press around Thank You for Listening of like, Yes. You know, the, you're an audiobook narrator. wrote this book about audiobook narrators. And I'm like, yeah. And then I would say, I'm not the first person to do this. And I would point to your books or your radio Which plays. was so kind of you. But it was, oh, my you God. You know, I mean, I and I we had talked about this because I was like, I couldn't bring myself to listen to These Walls Talk. Wait, I'm sorry. Now I'm going to mess it up. Is that right? Yeah, These Walls Can Talk. These Walls Can Talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always feel like I'm saying it wrong. Well, it's because of, like, the famous phrase, if these walls can talk. Like, there we people go. usually tag it, and they're like, I listen to if these walls can talk. I'm like, there's no if. It's okay. It's all right. It's fine. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, I couldn't bring myself to listen to it until I had, like, finished a draft of Thank You for Listening. Um, Smart. Because I didn't want any cross-pollination. And then I was like, this is so good. Oh, thank Why you. Why didn't I do this? Yeah. Yeah, and they're so different, right? This they is, are. I'm, I'm taking lots of um, writing for TV classes right now because this is I'm trying to dip my toes in. And something that keeps coming up, Not this is not just for TV, it's for all writing, is that you can write the same story as someone else, which we did not, but it's always going to be different. Like, there's only so many things yeah. that happen that you can write about. So they say nothing is original, and that always feels kind of terrible because you're like, no, I'm an original. But you and I both wrote something that takes a deep dive into the audiobook romance industry in a way. Yeah. yeah. And they're very, very different projects. And I love Absolutely. that. No, and I think that that's, I mean, that is a, such a truism. I mean, what is the, what's the quote that there's really only seven stories in existence anyway. And so if we're dealing with that, and then even when you get down to the specifics, like we did, it's still, it's a different voice and it's a different take. And that's, that's the individuality of it. And, and uh, I love that, frankly. Me too. I am, I just told this story briefly this week. I, I, because we don't have enough to do. I launched a creativity festival last week. <laughs> and yeah, and it was seven nights of classes, online classes. And there were some things that kept coming up with the different teachers that were all quite similar. But one thing that I brought up was years ago, I studied with a playwright named Mac Wellman. And his his work is really off the wall. It's It's wild. And he said, and I'll never forget it, that Your talent, and he didn't even like using that word, like I have to do air quotes when I write talent because what is that? But he said, if talent exists, it's the way you see and hear the world. It's how it moves through you. So he gave us the assignment to go to a cafe and sit down with another writer. And both of you sit there and then start eavesdropping. And eavesdrop on the same conversation. 
both of you write down as verbatim as you can what you hear. And you and he didn't tell us the point of it until later we brought all the pieces in and they were totally different. You are literally yeah. listening to the same thing, thinking you're copying it. And you came in with different plays. So, wow. yeah, it's just that's a great exercise. And it. that's also so human, isn't it? Like, that's how you end up having a fight with your partner yeah. and you're like I did not say that and they're like you absolutely <laughs> did like, <laughs> we're just we're, we're watching two different conversations yeah my husband you know all our husbands send us like maybe they don't but like memes and TikToks and stuff all day I'm always getting things from him and one of them was like hey baby let's hang out tonight and uh, read into each other's tone <laughs> because it's like the way you said that thing. Well, I didn't know I was saying it. This is what I meant. This is how it sounded. So yep. yesterday we had yeah. a little thing and I said, are we reading into each other's tone? And, he, and then we laugh and then we're good. So that's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious because I did not know about um, adapting the book from a screenplay. Yeah. That That is a whole job in itself. Was the Was the original screenwriter part of your process? How much did you have to adhere to what they already created? So my my agreement with the, um, with the, so there was an original screenplay written by Alison Burnett, and it was more on the drama side of things. When it got set up at the studio, the studio hired two rom-com people to come in and turn it into a rom-com. Hmm. And, and then by the time it got to me, and I was doing this with a friend of mine who'd also gone to Oxford, we were we were dealing with a screenplay where it was a rom-com up until the part where the main character dies. <laughs> and they got to, they got there. They got to the third act and they were like, "Okay, our job is done. Like we don't know how to make this funny, so we're we're done now." Mm. So, we inherited a screenplay that was kind of this Frankenstein's monster of these two different things. And so it um it took a different shape when we were when we were working on it. And then there were certain things that I just always had opinions about and um, couldn't be fixed for various reasons and, you know, producers having opinions about things and studios wanting certain things. But everyone respected what I was saying, which was very nice. So when it came around to actually how to make a book out of this, I said, you have to let me tell the story the way I want to tell the story, though, because I know how it can work in a book. Like, I take your, mm -hmm. I'll give the screenplay to you. You, I trust, you know, you guys, sure. You do what you think is best with that. But I know books. Let me do the book the way I want to do the book. And so they did not make me adhere strictly to the existing screenplay, which was such a gift. And they were very supportive. And the editorial process was great and all of that. Because once we said, okay, the screenplay is a screenplay. The book is the book. It was its own thing. I think this might be the first time I've ever heard. I'm sure it happens. But I am always hearing about books adapted into screenplays. This yeah. is the first time I've ever talked to someone about a screenplay turned into a book. Yeah, so this doesn't, it doesn't happen a lot. What's actually funny is one of the other times that it's happened, it was Love Story, oh. which started as a screenplay before it was novelized. And that was the inspiration for the original screenplay of my Oxford year. Oh. So again, in the author's note, I actually talk about this of like the kind of genetic memory of this book and that it's coming out of Love Story, which was also done the same way. But it's a, uh, there's a lot of, so in publishing, there's a lot of IP, right? There's work for hire stuff where a production company 
comes up with an idea, sometimes in collaboration with an author, sometimes not, and they write a book based on that idea. And I think that happens a lot more frequently than people believe. Mm-hmm. And I, they don't, authors don't like to talk about it for some reason, where for me, I was, I was like, I'm going to be very open about this. Like, I don't have a problem saying that it wasn't my original idea. I still wrote the book. I spent two years yeah. writing the book. The book is me. I don't just be, like, that doesn't make a difference to me. But I think some people are quiet about that. But it's, so that that part of it, the IP part of it is, pretty widely done, but going so far as to have a screenplay that is actually, like, in pre-production and actually has, like, a cast attached by the time you decide to write the book, and I was, I had to write that so fast, and I was, like, racing against a production timeline to try Mm. to get the book done. And then, you know, here we are six years later, and there's still no film, so. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Pressure. (laughs) Talk about pressure. Yeah. That wasn't necessary, ultimately. (laughs) Yeah, ultimately, I was like, I could have done another pass on that manuscript. Yeah. That would have been nice. <laughs> what you said about um, authors not really wanting to talk about the whole intellectual property IP thing, it makes me think about kind of like, have you ever had someone come to you and say, oh, I have this idea. you got to write about this thing. And they want to yeah. tell you their idea so you can write it because they know you're a writer. But... The ideas aren't the hard part. Like, no, the ideas are everywhere. Yeah. So to for anyone to say that you didn't fully write. Yeah. It's bananas. Well, it's people who don't understand writing. It's, it's true. You know, I mean, it's just they're afraid that the message is going to get flattened. And it, that's true, too. I mean, the way that something would be said in one sentence of just like it was a, it began life as an IP project or something yeah. would just flatten the entire experience. And for people who don't know what that process is like, they would come away with a certain assumption. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's why they just don't like talking about it, which I understand. Yeah. But for me, part of the origin story of this whole thing is how this came to be and is that before I ever sat down to write the book, I'd still been living with these characters for two years, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I had kind of, I knew where the bodies were buried in a sense, like, which is interesting from a story perspective. Like, I knew what I thought didn't work even in the screenplay I'd worked on, even in the one that I last touched, I still was like, this is what doesn't work. <laughs> and so going into the reverse adaptation process was, I already felt very embedded in the story as if it had been my, you know, personal thing that I'd been cogitating on for a decade or something. So I'm curious, I get this question a lot, so I'm, I'm kind of guessing you probably do too. You narrate, you write, you act, you do many things. Do they say to you, how many hours do you have in a day? How do you do it all? Yeah. Do you get this question? Yeah. 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 Do you have an answer? Because I'm still I don't have children. Mine. True. That's become my, that's kind of become my go-to answer because I know I've said the exact same thing to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, but I sit there and I go, and she has kids. <laughs> like, yeah. It makes no sense. So yeah. yeah, I mean, no, I don't, I don't have a good answer. I feel that as I get older, my ability to juggle everything, um, is diminishing. I mean, obvi- the obvious answer is like my personal health suffers and mm-hmm. um, my mental health suffers. And I'm trying, I strive for balance, but it just doesn't practically, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> I'm starting to, I'm not quite sure I believe in balance anymore. I think my version of balance is I'm always shifting it. So one month, depending on what I have going on, 
something's going to get my attention way more than the other. Something I've been trying recently is to have like three months on of narrating and then writing whenever I can. But the main event is narrating and then one full month where I won't narrate anything and I'm only writing as much as I can all day, every day. And that kind of works. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. But this month I'm trying something different. I've I've actually put myself on a schedule where I get up earlier than I'm going to say because it's going to say like I'm it's going to sound like I'm being a martyr, but it's actually working for me. So I get up very early and then I narrate for three to four hours, take the kids to school and then the next part is writing. Nothing else can come in. Emails, it's just writing. Mm. A little more narrating, pick up the kids from school. I'm a couple days in, and it's really working for my my mentality. Because I think the danger is we're both sitting in our booths right now. When you work from home, you, you could always can be tell working. yourself you should. Yeah, yeah theoretically, you could be working all the time. Yeah. So you're like, maybe I'll go in. Like, it's beckoning. You know you have a couple more chapters. You should get in there. But you also need to, like, sit down and have a cup of tea and live your life. Well, and that's why I think balance also, like, God forbid it just becomes one more thing that you're failing at. Like, I don't like having it on the list. I don't like it to be an agenda item. I just find that I think what has been, yeah, structure is helpful. The first two books I wrote on a deadline, like an external Mm -hmm. deadline from, you know, an entity. So I was very... I mean, my Oxford year, I just wrote, I got up super early, I wrote in the morning, and then I got in the booth, and I was not in a financial position at that point to cut back on narrating. So Mm -hmm. I was recording, it was way too much, and that's part of the reason there was four years between books, because I promised myself I would never write a book under those conditions again, because Mm -hmm. it was very, very bad for me. And then I... Right as I was getting ready, after my Oxford year published, and I was like, okay, now I'm going to do... I'm going to go on to the next thing. And an opportunity fell into my lap to work for a startup and be head of production at at Autumn, which was an app that put long-form journalism on audio. And as much as I didn't want, I was like, why? I like I have two careers. A whole other job. Yeah. job. I needed, at that point, like something had to change. Like yeah. I could feel myself going back onto the same conveyor belt. And it just... I wanted to have a year of learning something Mm -hmm. else, of feeling like I was doing something truly important, which at that time felt like supporting journalists and making journalism more accessible for people. And the gamble of, you know, if it pays off, you know, you've got that, like, nice startup, you've got some skin in the game. And when I stayed in that for a year before, because I told them when I took the job that if I don't have time to write, that's I'm going to stop. Like, I will quit because the writing needs to be the priority. And after a year of not writing anything, I said, I've got to to quit. (laughs) Like, I've got to hold myself to my own promise. And so I transitioned back to just being a narrator for the company. And that allowed me, though, when it was acquired by the New York Times, I got, you know, I was able to have, like, a little bit of a cushion that allowed me to not have to narrate as much as I had been. And then I could write the next book. But to me, that those things, I can't, I think this is what I mean by getting older, my mental ability to have the creative flow will not work if there's too many things competing for bandwidth. Just yeah. won't work. Yeah, and I think that's why I used to think it was an act of self-love to sort of let my day 
be different every day, to follow my whims, to do what needed to be done that day. And it felt like imposing a structure on me would be another, like, should, like, be a good yeah. girl, Erin, and this is the thing that you got to do. And then I would have to comply. But I'm I'm finding it to be the opposite, that by giving myself a structure where, no, you are not allowed to narrate during these hours. This is this is the time where you sit down, or actually, I, I write on my treadmill these days. That's how oh, I'm good trying to for keep. you. Oh, girl, because we have two careers where we're sitting on our bums yeah, all day. No, it's gone very so, poorly. Yeah, yeah. So since I've gotten this standing desk and treadmill situation, it's been really good. But I think the challenge is, I always say I don't like trading time for money. You see the people that have great wealth in the world and financial flow. They're almost never trading time for money. They've usually made some kind of investment, build a company. They're doing something that at some point the money keeps coming without them necessarily having to be in that office in that yeah. seat. Yeah. You know? And I adore audiobook narrating. I am trading time for money. You go in the booth. I know. I used to say that. I was like, that's where I really got demoralized with the job and where I had to just kind of like, that's why I've thrown everything up in the air over the last year because I was, I hated that feeling of, I had a joke with my husband. It was like, okay, I'm going to go in the money box now. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Like I go in and I close the door and I sit there for a few hours and I come out having made a certain amount of money. And like, that's just, you know. And you need to do that to take care of yourself. And thankfully, it's a job you enjoy. That said, writing, it's your book. You put it out into the world. It is like its own little business, the book that you've made. The book is the business, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think where I can get stuck sometimes if I don't put a a schedule into place, I know I need to pay my bills. So the narration takes precedence. This void, this like four hours I've set aside to write, it takes a lot of trust because the book doesn't exist yet. The project doesn't exist yet. What if I sit down and nothing happens? Something always happens. But you have to have such faith to sit down every day and face your manuscript And trust that it will turn into something. And I think that's why so many of us avoid it, because one thing is a sure thing, and the other takes a lot of faith. And the sure thing, you know, the way that we're compensated in this industry, the sure thing keeps us, like, just at a subsistence level, right? The sure thing does not create much of a safety net or, you know, so it really is— you know, it's not like, you know, they're on in on camera, which is the world I come out of, right? And you would have, right. I have actor friends who are like, I mean, no, I don't want to do the Hallmark movie. But, you know, it'll it'll be a hundred grand in three weeks or whatever. And it's like, yeah, do the Hallmark movie. <sighs> do the Hallmark movie, man. And I would have these yeah. conversations with them. And I'm like, do you know how much, you know how many books I have to do to, to make like that make that much? Like, just do the Hallmark movie. Absolutely. Like, are you kidding me? So, yeah, I mean, it's a... Uh, it is an investment in—that's kind of the way I had to stop seeing I had to look at it because I'm very practical, that it was not an investment in myself, which is what everyone told me. Yeah, but this—the writing time is an investment in you. Well, that wasn't mm. good enough for me. I had to think of it as it's an investment in the future. Yeah. Because audiobook narration was not. And so it was like it's diversifying a portfolio in a sense. You know, this is an excellent segue for what is Audiobury? Yeah, what is Audiobury? Um, what is it? Audiobury is is an exercise in righteous spite. Um, no, yes, <laughs> audiobury. Oh, that's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I mean, you know, I have been bitching pretty vocally. I mean, this has always bothered me about the industry that narrators don't get royalties. And we're talking about here when I when I say this, I always need to kind of remind people that I'm mostly talking about traditional publishing. Okay. Um, to start with, 
So audiobook narrators don't get royalties in traditional publishing. And uh, the, the answer to why is just because that's the way it's always been. And that just, for the last five years, that really has not been a good enough answer for me. And for the last three years, when we've seen this massive boom yet again, I mean, I've been doing this 15 years. I've been through a lot of, it's just been boom after boom after boom. But that pandemic boom, that 2020 boom, was really the moment where I stopped being able to stomach the answer, well, that's just the way it is. And for me, I, you know, I think, so there's a couple components to this. For me, I, I don't understand how in an industry, uh, publishing that is, that is based on an advance against royalties model, it's very familiar with that accounting. It's familiar with that bookkeeping. That's the way the industry works. We are not cut into that. I also have a problem with the fact that as a traditionally published author, I know how hard it is to get traction, to get people, to get visibility, to have people find your book. And one of the only points of discoverability an author has is their audiobook narrator. That is an yes. audience you can borrow. And you mm-hmm. can't do it in any other part of publishing. And, you know, we all get messages that are like, I'll listen to anything you record, or I found this book because you were narrating it. And the industry has just flat out refused to acknowledge that that is the case, that that is happening. And as the industry, uh, on top of that, as the industry keeps making double-digit growth every year, it's not like our rates have gone up double-digit mm-hmm. every year. So they're not even paying us better. <laughs> so I just... I knew this was coming. I've been saying pretty publicly for in interviews that if I ever stop narrating, it'll be because of this. It'll be because it's just the unfairness gets to me. And when I feel resentful, I'm not, I can't perform well. And I was prepared to just walk away from this industry entirely. I had gotten to that point. But I love it so much, Erin, as you said. Like, we just, we love this job. And People love the job that I do. And I was like, wait, why would I walk away from something that brings me joy, that brings other people joy, when this system, I think, is fixable? So that's a very long answer to Audiobrary is an audio publishing company and distribution platform (laughs) that tries to address the issue of pay disparity for narrators. And I will be doing um, original content. Uh, I've got a few things in the pipeline right now. And I will also be a distribution channel for existing projects for people who would like to be able to give their narrators a royalty. And part of the the reason that it's there's a there's a website where you can do where you can purchase the product and the product is delivered to the Audiobrary app. And the reason that I created a direct consumer model here is because if I were just creating an audio publishing company and the the books will go into the ecosystem. They'll be on Audible, they'll be on like the, it's I'm not trying to, like, make a stand against any of this, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to, in the messaging of, if you buy directly through Audiobrary, the authors are getting more, the narrators are actually getting something, and we are trying to build a sustainable future for people in this in- industry as it changes and as it becomes something that is not even something that's going to care about the human storytellers in the future. So That's amazing. You've been working on this for a very long time, kind of in the dark. 
right? Well, mm-hmm. we've been in the dark. And then you're just like, yeah. boom, yeah. did this thing. But <laughs> it's yeah, been in I mean, the works. It was about for, I mean, other than like the boiling rage that I've been sitting on for so long, um, if you call that work, then a very long time. But the actual work of building the company and building the the tech and putting this together happened. It was about a year, about a mm-hmm. year total. And it's live now. To and launch. It's live. I mean, there's not any, the things that are on there right now are my two books. I have a distribution agreement with my publisher for my two books are on there. My next book, which is going to be exclusive to this platform for at least the foreseeable future, is up for pre-order on there. And there's going to be more stuff added soon. So it's, it's, proto but if you go into the app you can download the app like you can go on the app store and, the, and wow. google play and like download the app and there was like some audio content in there already for you and you know yeah and so authors I, I would imagine particularly indie authors it would be very easy for them to sign up with you and make it happen if they want yeah, yeah? i think what one thing that i'm doing so again this is like the other thing i should not have done talk about not having any balance was start a company and write a book in the same year. So, um, <laughs> but you can't avoid it sometimes. No, you can't. It's also why, like, I narrated nothing last year. Like, I think I narrated like four books last year because who has the time? Um, who has the time to actually to go in the money box? So I, um, but what I, so I right now on the website it says like please don't send us anything. Like, not open to submissions. Oh, okay. However, I would say sign up for the newsletter. Follow us on Instagram. It's my audio brewery. You can also follow me because I'll be posting about this a lot. But when that changes and when we do create some kind of submission mechanism, gotcha. I, I want to let people know. Like, it's never going to be audible. I don't. It's going to mm-hmm. be a curated selection. And mainly, what I'm looking for is the whole point of audio brewery is that it feels like a library. I want it to mm-hmm. be that feeling of you read something, it piques your interest, you find something else about it. So about that topic. So. You know, if we've got a project, like the next project we're doing is a narrative nonfiction project about the Modoc War, and I'm going to be looking for stuff that has something to do with that, either like Indian-U.S. government relations or um, some Native history or things that are just like in that world to fill out that kind of topic. And, you know, with my next book is a... Is a it's very smutty, Erin. It's, uh, yeah, it's a proper exciting. romance. I wrote an actual romance this time. So I want to have more romance on the app as well. And, you know, and I want to also with narrators, narrators who write, because there's a lot of us. Mm-hmm. I, I have a, there's going to be a narrator nook on the website for narrators who are also the rights holders of their own work to be on there as a kind of a place where people can find us if they're coming to Audiobrary because of me as like a narrator and they know that here look here's a selection of all the other narrators who have who also write and that um, is awesome well because you were you were the one I think a couple years ago starting this massive Twitter thread you were so you're so generous in that way people were coming to you because of your book and they were excited about that and you're like I'm not the only one and then you started just tagging all of us that are also doing it and that was just so nice. Well, so it's, nice. I mean, thank you, but honestly, that's so... Um, it should be the way. It should be the well, way. Well, it should be only because, and I, I never feel with a narrator who chooses to write, like, we know, we have we have powers other people don't have. And, like, we are, it's always going to be good. And I mean that. Everyone who I've read, a narrator who, they because they have such a an inner critic, I think, they're very good. We we know how it feels to live inside a story. 
and mm-hmm. right? And we know when it feels like a lot of effort to make it feel human. And yeah. And also, to be fair, you've been a writer for a very long time, and so have I, right? So yeah. it's it's not we like— We started as writers, right? You were a writer before this job? Yeah, well, it's a little complicated. I started as a stage actor and then started writing plays, yeah. and I started narrating books, like, exactly around the same time I started writing plays. Okay. So they kind of happened together. Okay. But acting came first, and then writing. And then you started acting very young, but it seems like you were always a huge reader and went to school, went to college for writing, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was a, yes, I was a child actor. Um, So the acting came first, but it was always this twin impulse um, with writing. And then when I left the business, I went to school for writing and with the full intention of just doing that and then found myself doing audiobooks. And, you know, there's that, um, there's definitely like a transitional stage. I I couldn't write for about three years when I started doing this job because I just wasn't, I wasn't good enough at either to begin with. And I would find that jumping in and out of other authors' voices, you know, every four days being in a different book and a different genre and a different type of style and different, you know, point of view, all of it was like I didn't have a sense of my own voice as a writer. It wasn't it, it wasn't firm enough to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, years ago, if you said that to me, what you just said, I wouldn't even be able to process it in the same way. Like you said— you didn't know your voice or your voice wasn't firm enough in you, I would be like, well, what's my voice? I don't know. What I've learned, my voice is, what am I curious about? What am I excited about? What do I have to write? I still go in and out where I don't realize I'm doing it, but I'm trying to write in the way I think I need to, like particularly when it comes to romance. So you said your new book has way more sex and way more spice, right? Yeah. My inclination in my romantic comedies is to keep the comedy flowing always because that's what brings me joy. So I have sex scenes in my books, but they're weird-ass sex scenes. They're weird. (laughs) They're so weird. (laughs) But I'm delighted by them. So people don't come to me for those hot, titillating sex scenes. Right, right. The people that read me want some weird stuff. But I'm narrating this book right now um, by Megan Quinn, and she is just so good at what she does. It's hilarious. She's so good, and it's such a joy to narrate. And her sex scenes, I was on a panel with her at a Polycon this year, and I asked a question about how she writes her sex scenes and does she keep the comedy flowing. And I won't put words in her mouth because I don't remember verbatim, but she said something to the effect of, no, I go full force with the comedy, and then when it comes to the sex scenes, I want people immersed in the the sexiness of it, the the tension of it, the right. the emotionality of it. So I was like, huh. I'm sure I could do that, but I just, I got to do some weird Tarzan scene where she's swinging from his penis. Like, I can't help myself. And what I'm starting to learn is, well, that's no okay. one else could do that, Erin. <laughs> that's voice. They could. They could. But. Well, but going back to the beginning of this conversation, you could set me a scene where you would be like, write a scene. Where it's like Tarzan cosplay and she's swinging from his dick and I would be like, (laughs) it would be a very different scene, Aaron Mellon. Yes. We would write it very differently. Oh, it just makes me, I just have fun. So I don't know. But (laughs) tell me, tell me what the process was like for you. First of all, back up for a second and tell people that don't know, what is Casanova LLC? Right, right. Okay. And then um, I want to hear about the decision, if it was a decision, to go sexier. Yeah. Okay. So Casanova LLC was the 
premise of this book I had to come up with for Thank You for Listening. So Thank You for Listening is about two audiobook narrators who fall in love while recording a romance together. But the trick is they don't actually know who the other person is because they're both recording under pseudonyms. So I had to come up with, I knew when I was writing Thank You for Listening, I would have to come up with the project that they were recording together and what that was going to be. And in the world of Thank You for Listening, there is an iconic uh, romance novelist who, this was her last book. She dies right before the action of Thank You for Listening starts, and this is her last novel, and it's an audio series, and it is about a second chance romance with a gigolo descended from Casanova. Yes. So this was the ridiculous premise that I came up with for the rom-com of Thank You for Listening because I was like, it doesn't need to make sense. It needs to actually be as absurd as possible so that the two narrators can bond over how absurd it is. But as I started figuring out more of the story for the purposes of Thank You for Listening, I realized there was actually something really interesting here. It kind of got its hooks into me and wouldn't let me go. And when I was done with Thank You for Listening, I just realized I was not actually done with Casanova LLC. So I had the thought that I would just kind of fast draft it and like get it out and maybe even get it done in time for when Thank You for Listening came out. And it would be just a thing I'd put up on Kindle Unlimited and like people could read it. And it just wanted to be bigger than that. And so I worked on it. And the thing that I had in my head the whole time was how, this is not necessarily the book I would write, but how would June French, this iconic romance novelist, fictitious novelist, how would she have written this book? And what did she want to say to the people that she wrote it for, these two narrators? It was fun. And so there's a there's a level there's a there's one degree of remove I think between me and what this book ended up being. And it's that said though it's actually I think the best thing I've ever written. What? Yeah. Wow. Um, Why? I, Why? I had this uh, so I think I got out of my own way. Like I had this sense of I was not approaching it seriously when I started. I was approaching it as the kind of ridiculous premise that it was. And it then became very apparent to me that this had the potential to be good. And once I finally committed to that and I said, let's, I'm going in, let's, like, <laughs> fine, fuck it, I'm doing this properly. It just became a really, really compelling intricate. There's the character development in this is, like, super small and super intricate and, I'm as surprised as anyone else, but I had this I had this suspicion that it was really good. And then in the recording process, that was kind of echoed back to me. And then in the people that I've sent it to, my friends who are also writers, and I'm getting texts from them being like, this is the best thing you've ever written. I don't know what, I don't know where this leaves me. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that, but it's, this is what happened. Well, so. I know what I'm going to do with that is take it as, like... When you're having fun and when you're following your curiosity and you care, but not too much, yeah. you know, something happens and then you get led through it instead of you leading it, you know? Um, That's good. That's good. And I, and I do, that might yeah. actually be it because A, I had to, like I said, commit to the romance part of it, which I hadn't done in my first two books, but I had to commit to that. And then it was like, well, then how can I make these scenes actually mean something? 
you know, not just be filler sex scenes, but like, how do they matter to character? And that that was a challenge. And then for me, I think also the fact that for the first time, this wasn't something that was autobiographical. And this was something where, because with the other two books, I was always trying to find points of departure between like, oh, this isn't me. This isn't me. So some, I think some writing decisions were made explicitly just so it wouldn't be autobiographical. And here I was free from that. I didn't have to, I didn't have an audience in my head kind of telling me like, well, that's you. And I'd be like, no, it's not. Okay, well, I'm going to change this then. I didn't have that. Isn't that something? It's like, I'm always thinking about, and people talk about this all the time, how much to care about the audience and how much you're creating for yourself. And it's like this age old thing. Like, it sounds like right now, those thoughts that you were describing of, no, this is this is not me, and this part's not autobiographical. You were thinking about the potential response because you've heard that from people before, mm-hmm. right? And you've struggled with it internally. So that's like sitting outside the thing, and you can't quite get, like, your hooks into it. You're, like, rooted into it because you're out there. But then if you're creating 100,000% for yourself, I mean, I come from the theater, we need to care. We need to be communicating yes. something. You got to keep the lights on. <laughs> exactly. And and they're in the seats for a reason. You you don't want that FU audience feeling. Like they're there yeah. for a yeah. reason. So it's just this fine line, but it sounds like you found it in the process of this book. Well, I think that might have been what happened and also I think that there's so many things around traditional publishing. Like I didn't set out to this was not what I was writing. I was not writing in this space before my Oxford year. And because of the way that came about, and it was like, well, I guess I'm writing rom-coms now. And I was like, well, while I'm here, I better do the next, the only other rom-com idea I have, which is something set in the audiobook space. And so everything was sort of tailored to, and this is in no way, I mean, I want to make sure that we're clear. I'm proud of both of my other books. And and I, I really do. I love them. And it's me. And I didn't, I didn't pull any punches, but there were just external things that defined those books when you're publishing traditionally when you know you've got people telling you like yes but this is your lane this is your market and there was something very I think freeing about this one where I was like this is not anything I have no plans to return to this area like this is not a thing I'm trying I'm not trying to have a career here I'm not even selling it traditionally I'm using it to launch my company I can do whatever I want and there was this feeling of like I'm just gonna like do it the way that I think it should be done, and people are either going to get it or they won't. And it was very low stakes. Let me put it that way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this inspires me so much because everything you're saying, it's just, I think that's where great things come from. And it's like, how can we keep that energy when those outer things, the, the deadlines, the traditional publisher, the contracts and all that stuff, How can we keep that? This is the whole point of the podcast. How can we keep that spirit of play in the forefront while those outward things are pushing on you? Yeah. Yeah. And look, and I think, I mean, I just had a little writer's weekend thing out here and we did not actually write. No one wrote a word, but we needed (laughs) to talk about, you know, the demands of exactly what you're talking about, traditional deadlines, also social media, and feeling that I think one of the differences that we have not as creatives totally grappled with is that as we become 
used so much in the marketing of our books and as we are, and this is the same for indie, like so much of your own brand and your availability to your readers is what sells the books now. And I don't think that we have totally taken into account the toll that can create creatively where you feel that you have however many thousands of followers sitting on your sitting over your shoulder watching you write is a very it's I I don't know I don't know how I don't know the way around it this is the next I'm I'm trying to fix one system at a time okay (laughs) but like Julia will get back to you she's gonna fix this too (laughs) let me work on this one um but it's a it is a problem it's a problem I sort of wanted to this is gonna sound like self-helpy But I sort of wanted to mirror something back to you. You had said in an interview about you want to be a more joyful person and a less cynical one. And when I heard that, I mean, granted, we don't hang out every day, so I don't know you on a very deep level. But I was surprised by that because the vibe I get from you, not only from when I've been in your presence, but watching you live your creative life, you seem to create joy and also... You seem to have a, a, a faith in life. I'm just going to tell you who I think you are, Julia. I appreciate um, <laughs> this. I appreciate this. Your actions, you're taking the kind of actions in the world and your creativity that look like someone that really loves life and wants to participate in it fully and follow your creative impulses because you're not afraid to be a narrator and a writer. On your website, you also have screenwriter. You have all your videos from a very successful career as an actor. So it's like you seem to be using your life as a palette and you're not letting anyone say this is who you are and this is where you stay. And I think that to me reads as this person's diving into life and seeking joy and making it, creating it too. So I I appreciate that. that. I appreciate that. I mean, I think, you know, I think you're right in that the the joy of my life is in the creativity part of it. So if you're seeing the creativity part of it, you're seeing the joy. The cynicism is in everything else and sure. where I think we're headed as humanity and, you know, the that part of it. I I can I can dip very very quickly into pessimism or futility, um but when I feel that something is in my control, yeah, I I want to make things better. I I want to affect people and move people that's the goal and that's when I'm happiest what have you I always ask people this before we're done the interview what have you been watching listening to reading these days that has you feeling a little bit of hope (laughs) silence um (laughs) let me let me think about that um and that does not have to mean that doesn't have to be as serious as it sounds I will no 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 Um, so first of all I I saw Maestro Mm. uh, the other day and I never ever ever miss on camera acting except when I saw A Star Is Born and now when I saw Maestro and maybe it's just a Bradley Cooper kink but I was just like (laughs) I would trust you I would trust you to you know let me be in, in his world and I would love it but there's there's a speech in that which of course I'm going to um completely screw up and take out of context but I had to stop it and sit with it for a while because it's it is about that the pressure of the audience and being a public persona and how that changes the work and I think that's a it was beautifully done but I'm getting a lot of joy right now from thinking about the projects that I can do through Audiobrary 
that are these things that exist in this liminal space between like, are they books? Are they podcasts? Are they, what are they? And I built a thing where you can, we can do kind of whatever we want. And so like creatively, my well is full in ways that it hasn't been in years trying to work in traditional systems and trying to make things fit into that. And so it's not necessarily for me right now coming out of any writing I'm doing. It's not my writing. It's like shepherding other people's and developing projects. And I'm just super energized by that. That is cool. And how can uh, people listening to the podcast, how can they support you and Audiobrary as it gets going? Oh, thank you. Well, um, they can definitely (laughs) pre-order Casanova. I'm doing a—so the way that I'm doing—I don't know when this is going to air, but the way that I'm doing this is you can get it as as intended, as June French intended, being an eight-episode series, and the first episode will drop on Valentine's Day. You can upgrade based on, again, user feedback uh, that I can—now I can just, like, implement these things, that there—if you want to binge it, for a $5 upcharge, you can get all of the episodes on Valentine's Day— and listen to it like a normal book. I also am creating a rabbit hole edition, which will have interviews with the cast and um, some behind-the-scenes stuff and outtakes and conversations. And so if you really, like, it's kind of like the bonus commentary on the DVD. People love that stuff. Yeah. Everyone loves that stuff. And it's a really good. I've been editing those uh, interviews together, and they're actually a lot of fun. And we should actually talk about the cast because we know the cast. So... It's a duet with Sebastian York, and then I brought in Eduardo Ballerini to play my favorite character I've ever written, who is Sebastian York's uh, uncle, the retired Casanova, who has passed this (laughs) off to his nephew. I must listen. And Eduardo absolutely kills it, is amazing. And then there's a cameo appearance by Jonathan McClain playing a reprehensible uh, flashback character. So it's really great. And I mean this when I say that I'm I'm very proud of it, and I'm very proud of the performances in it. And uh, yeah, so that would be that would be the best. We also have we we just got some gift cards up on the website. So if like you're not into smut, <laughs> but you want to, but you're invested in the in future projects, you can I suppose buy a, a gift card. But honestly, signing up for the newsletter and downloading the app and just supporting it in that way would be great. Yeah. And, you know, this smut is always such an interesting word. I have a a relationship with the word smut. I hear some people use it as like the best thing in the world. Yeah. They're looking for it. They're writing it. And it's empowering. And then some people use it as the smut kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, the disdainful smut. So we could call it, I don't know, wildly exciting sexual encounters it is, in a okay, creative so book. <laughs> it's also like because it's such a small, I mean, it's a really, it feels more like a play. It's like some of these scenes are like 20 pages long and it's just conversation. And Sebastian coined, he was like, there's some kind of intimacy kink going on mm. here. And that's really kind of what the book is. Like, I don't expect this to be, you know, some one of the like smutty sensations of, you know, TikTok lore or whatever, because it's a very small, very intimate exploration of these two characters. And it's kind of just highly eroticized in that respect. So, And I love hearing that it's like a play. So many people think that theater is not for them or plays aren't their thing. And then they hear something, you don't call it a play, and they love it. And you're like, oh, because you like that 
that energy back and forth between human beings. You like that immediacy and that intimacy. Yep. That's theater. That's a great audio experience. So, yeah. I can't wait yeah. to hear it. <laughs> well, it is. It's fun. I will say that. All right, Julia. All right, Aaron. This is lovely. Big thanks to Julia for being with us today. Here are some of my takeaways from her episode. One, sometimes we have an idea for a long time. It stays with us for years and slowly grows alongside us. That's what that particular idea needs to find its shape. Other times, an idea plops into our laps and demands we act on it immediately, like Casanova LLC did for Julia. When we can't stop thinking about something, it's often a great indicator that the time is now. Dive in and play. Two, there's something to be said for not taking our work so seriously all the time. We can care deeply about what we put into the world and also see where some fun and silliness can take us. I call that being playfully serious. I'm so enchanted by the way Julia describes the beginnings of Casanova LLC. When she was writing Thank You for Listening, she was purposely being silly with the Casanova LLC story so her characters in Thank You for Listening could have something ridiculous to bond over. But then, when she got playfully serious about actually writing Casanova LLC, something really cool started to happen. She felt freed up. Since it wasn't serious work, quotes, I'm putting it in quotes, there was nothing to prove. Maybe there never is. And Julia cracked into some corners of her creativity she hadn't explored before, leading some early readers to say it's her best work so far. I think that is so wild, and it gives me a lot of hope. Three. If something about your life, your work, or industry doesn't sit right with you, and the structures that are already in place won't budge, what is stopping you from creating your own structure? When you think about it, anything that exists was just created by someone, right? It's all made up. So you can take the steps to make something up that aligns with your values. You can build something that will grow into the future with you and create more of the world you want to see. When Julia kept meeting brick walls in her discussion to have narrators more fairly compensated for the books they perform and promote, she finally decided to take matters into her own hands, and she created Audiobrary. I just downloaded the app, and I'm so excited to support this awesome endeavor and watch the company grow. Thanks for listening to My Job is to Play, Conversations on Creativity with Erin Mallon. This podcast is produced by Oh Yes, She Did Productions, with line editing and mastering by Tyler Whitlatch of Plunk Productions. If you're enjoying this show, it means the world to us when you leave a review and share episodes with your friends. Word of mouth is the way we're growing this thing. As always, we'll see you next week with another interview with an incredible guest. Tune in to My Job is to Play every Friday morning for a new episode to get your weekend started right.